Good morning, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen. Salam alaikum to everyone, wherever you may be uh, in the United States, in the Middle East, in the Arab region, the Islamic world, Europe, Latin America, Africa, wherever, even at the two Arctic poles. <clears throat> My name is Dr. John Duke Anthony. I'm the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. The National Council was founded in 1983, where headquartered in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> but we have affiliates, associates, alumni, participants uh, in our programs, projects, events, and activities throughout all 50 of the United uh, States of America. <clears throat> our vision is to place the positive aspects of America's relations with the bulk of the 22 Arab countries <clears throat> on as firm a foundation as possible firmer than it has been, firmer than it is, firmer than it is likely to be, unless enough good people on all sides work to uh, seek to accomplish that particular uh, goal. Uh, we have nine different programs. <clears throat> we focus heavily on introducing American leaders, uh, extant leaders and those who are emerging, uh, putting them on the ground, smack in the middle of the Arab-US uh, relationship. <clears throat> empirical as opposed to theoretical, and actual as opposed to uh, uh, virtual. In terms of the countries where we have programs, 12 different Arab countries of the 22. Myself, I've been to 17 of them over the years. I've been blessed in that regard. This is my 59th year of trying to make sense of the, of the region. Uh, in all humility and truthfulness, it's like being in a university from which there's no possible graduation. Only on the best of days does one get an incomplete. And so if anyone refers to another as an expert in this field, they must be smoking something. And I would switch the channels uh, there in that regard. Today, <clears throat> we're going to focus on a different topic. All of our topics are different and yet there is a commonality to them. When I say with seeking a vision, uh, the vision, what would it look like if it is better than now and has been or is likely to be uh, unless enough good people work to make that happen? <clears throat> that would be strong macro strategic ties, macro ones in terms of the purpose of life, the meaning of life. And these cut to the quick and to the bone with regard to war and peace issues or conflict or violence or extremism or militancy or radicalism uh, to shake up a rules-based order. And without uh, that kind of a uh, framework, uh, heaven help us, the additional uh, strategic uh, approaches have to do with economics, people's material well-being, their cost of living, their standard of living, uh, their being able to walk out and realize that they're functioning sewers and streets and roads and hospitals and schools and clinics and, and traffic lights and well-ordered things that people can anticipate, plan, and predict, and prepare around. <clears throat> then there are also the political aspects, because so many of our rules, if not all of our rules, are indeed uh, enacted by policymakers. As we speak in the United States Congress, uh, there are hearings going on for a woman uh, to be one of the country's highest judges in the land for the Supreme uh, Court, Katanji Jackson. Uh, so the, whether she'll be uh, approved or not remains to be seen, but these things have to be reduced to paper. They have to be circulated, they have to be distributed. They have to be consulted. They have to be consensually arrived at. Third, thirdly, or fourthly rather, uh, has to do with um, commercial uh, dynamics and, and strategies for them, uh, open markets, uh, uh, free trade agreements, uh, reasonable or manageable uh, transfer and trade in goods and services uh, so that uh, people's uh, material well-being will be met that way. And then also defense because of countries having assets that oftentimes their neighbors or nearby countries would like to have for themselves. And if they cannot negotiate them, if they cannot <coughs> uh, enact a friendly government by proxy, and then the thought of invasion or military operation, to use the vernacular coming out of Moscow, 
would be resorted to. Those are the five strategic um, goals under the um, overall uh, vision of the National Council. The National Council's mission is much briefer. One word, education. And this is what we're doing today. Today, we're focusing on a country that is like an oftentimes more to a continent than a country. Saudi Arabia has 13 neighbors. Iran has 11. Most Americans think we have uh, two. <clears throat> but if you're a uh, former governor of Alaska and you stand in your front yard or backyard, you can see a third one. Uh, there somewhere in the distance, if it's not too foggy on that day. And then there are the Caribbean ones, and then there's Bermuda. <clears throat> so Americans uh, are rather isolated, as both of our speakers will agree and note, and that, that has come as a price because it feeds ignorance, it feeds arrogance, it feels, uh, feeds pontification and lecturing others uh, to try to be uh, like the United States, which is an impossibility. No two countries are the same. Uh, each is like a set of uh, fingerprints and snowflakes. Uh, each is as different as, as the next. So the, that's our educational mission and our vision. Uh, today we have a webinar that focuses on this country, uh, Saudi Arabia, <coughs> that has these 13 neighbors. Saudi Arabia, you can say, is the captain of the team or the headquarters of the Arab region, the 22 Arab countries. One could also make the uh, claim and argue it uh, persuasively that Saudi Arabia is the most sought after and influential of all of the uh, 28 Middle Eastern countries. Not all Arab countries are Middle Eastern countries uh, and vice versa, the same as well. And Saudi Arabia is the headquarters as well of the 57 Islamic countries or members of the Organization of the Islamic Conference, the highest political body in the Islamic world. And it's the headquarters, the Secretary General of the Gulf Cooperation Council. And it is many other things in terms of a regional leader with its policies, its positions, its actions, its attitudes uh, that are taken seriously into account. But how did it get to be this way? <clears throat> Barely a century ago, uh, people did not make reference to Saudi Arabia or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Little more did they make reference than to simply Arabia. How did this come to be? We know that a giant physically and politically uh, came onto the scene and had been waiting to come onto the scene since he was a teenager, since he left with his father and found refuge, asylum <coughs> in Kuwait at the end of the century before last. And therefore, the bondage between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia is Siamese twin-like. They're joined at the hip and have been so for more than a century. And this young man uh, became the king. His father saw a leader when he knew one and abdicated peacefully in favor of his son and lived on after his son became the country's uh, monarch. That particular charisma uh, is anchored in a historical phenomenon. Students of history and political science and philosophy are familiar with the name of a man called Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun was from Tunisia and he wrote widely and profusely, voluminously. And he was of the view that uh, generations come and go, the dynamic, sparkling, riveting uh, leader uh, lasts through her or his generation, but then what? Usually there is someone, especially if they've had lots of nieces or nephews or sons and daughters, <clears throat> who will pick up the flame and carry it forward and will have a, an enormous support base and a cheerleading squad. So too will the grandchildren, but the grandchildren have a more faded memory that they may remember bouncing on their grandfather's knee or a hug or a kiss or some admonition or some role, role model. But after the third one, uh, that flame is flickered out and new gimmicks have to come to pass. The German political scientist Max Weber uh, talked about the institutionalization of charisma. How do you wrap around a great person's exploits, their legends, their lessons, things that from them we've learned 
so that they will be protected and protected for far into the future uh, as far as one can possibly imagine. <clears throat> King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud in the West is the reference to him, uh, was such a giant and left his footprint, his stamp, an indelible, enduring imprint on what is and has been for some time Saudi Arabia for half a century. And he produced a large following in terms of his progeny, sons and daughters, uh, many of whom are still making their imprint in the country to this day. And then there are the grandchildren. The baton has been passed to the grandchildren de facto in the case of Mohammed ibn Salman, uh, the son of uh, King Salman bin Abdulaziz, the monarch of Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> we have two people who are going to focus on this, uh, Joshua Yafi, Y-A-P-H-E, and Joseph Kashishim, K-E-C-H-I-C-H-I-A-N, who is a much published uh, author, and Josh uh, Yaffe uh, and some others are working in the shadow of Dr. Kashishian. Uh, Joshua Yaffe is the senior analyst for the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in the U.S. Uh, Department of, of State. Uh, he has spent much of the past year in Saudi Arabia and the DCC countries meeting, conducting research, writing and testing his hypotheses and theses and ideas about what really is the legend and the legacy of King Abdulaziz. And Dr. Joseph Kashishian has written four books pertaining to politics and succession and governmental structure and the dynamics of the political system in Saudi Arabia among his numerous other books. We couldn't find two finer uh, Western American scholars in this case to focus on what that legacy was, is, and how it pertains to the realities today, today's issues, today's challenges, today's opportunities, today's misunderstanding, today's misinformation. Without further ado, Joshua Yaffe. Thank you so much, Professor Anthony. I appreciate it. And um, it's very much an honor to be here at the National Council of U.S. Arab Relations here in your in your building. Uh, I do enjoy very much speaking for your audiences and participating in your events, because when I began my career, I can recall how your institution was a, a place where people working on the Gulf here in Washington came to speak, talk, get to know one another, uh, learn, educate themselves and educate others. And it was really the only venue for doing that in terms of the Arab Gulf states here in Washington at the time. And it served as sort of a lab or a uh, venue for mentoring uh, a whole generation of experts on the Arab Gulf states. That being said, we're here today to talk about uh, books that, that both I have written and, and Professor Kashichian has, has recently written. Uh, uh, mine is now out in publication, so I'll show up a copy right now. Thank you. Saudi Arabia and Iraq as friends and enemies, borders, tribes, and history shared. I know it's a little fuzzy there in the picture, but you can go to Amazon and find a copy. Uh, I'll let uh, Dr. Kashishian introduce his own research. Uh, I'm sure many of you will be familiar with his many, many books over the years on Gulf affairs, um, but I'll let him introduce his own work. Where to begin with, with this piece of writing that I've, that I've come out with? Uh, I know where I began when I started this research and, and from the Saudi side of, of the research that really had to do with these Najdi communities living in Southern Iraq, once upon a time. Most of them aren't there anymore. There's still little remnants here and there, but by and large, uh, the communities that once existed of cultural, ethnic, uh, religious, self-identifying Najis uh, that once lived, existed, populated, the little towns and villages of the southern Euphrates, Zubair, Sukhshayukh, Hamisia, uh, uh, they had uh, folks living in Basra, you name it. Uh, they were highly educated. They had their own schools, their own madrasas, their own 
uh, mosques, uh, their own imams, and they were a highly literate, highly, highly knowledgeable community. Most of them picked up and moved to Saudi Arabia. Some moved to Jordan, some moved to other parts of the Gulf in the course of the early to mid 20th century, particularly by the 1960s. Uh, there had been an exodus of these people, but they were interesting for me to study and to learn about. There's very little in English, almost nothing. Uh, there's a whole series of, of books at first hand written by residents of these towns who went and moved to the Gulf at different points. Some of them publishing documents, pictures, uh, accounts of what it was like to live in these villages in the old days. And I was fascinated by this because what does that mean to be a Najdi? These were people who identified as, as being Najdi on some level to the extent that they felt comfortable packing up and moving to go live in the Najd, even though they had not been raised there. Uh, they were perhaps four or five, six generations removed. They no longer spoke the same dialect of Arabic. Mm. Uh, and they had to forge their own way once they arrived, almost starting from scratch in society in, in some ways, in some ways not, we can talk about that as well. Uh, in the end, they created their own networks within Aramco, within the Royal Court, uh, one person helping another to get a leg up in the new country, to get established in society and to find a good job. Uh, and they brought their skills and education with them, helping to make the royal court uh, a more, a more um, I don't know, professional environment uh, with intellectual discourse in a sense, you might say. They brought a whole set of skills that were badly needed at the founding of the Saudi state in the early 1920s. And when Aramco was created, similarly, they brought a whole set of skills to help make that enterprise run uh, for many, many years. Now, that was when I started. Uh, and when I, when I began, I had the, the fortune of uh, running into, at the time, Minister of Information, Adel Tarefi here in Washington, asking him his thoughts on a project of this sort. He was very enthusiastic. Later on, I had the pleasure of meeting Thamar al-Sabhan, asking him for his views and thoughts on on this type of work, and he was very encouraging, said this is an excellent project, you have to do this. Uh, but once you, you dig into the topic, you have to, to broaden the scope so much more in ways that I didn't predict and in ways that rather surprised me. Because you have to ask yourself, for instance, okay, uh, if these folks are Najdi, then what does it mean to be Najdi? If they are part of a new political class in Riyadh, then what does it mean to have politics in Riyadh? Um, if we're going to talk about politics and policy making, then what do we really know about decision making in the royal court? And if the royal court is trying to give these folks a home and to make them feel welcome in the kingdom, uh, based on a shared identity, a shared nationality, then what does it mean to be Saudi? And indeed, in that regard, what does it mean to be Iraqi? And that brings us right back to the original question, what does it mean to be Najdi? Now, I could go to Saudi Arabia, travel around the countryside, see friends, acquaintances, tell them I was working on a book on Najdi communities outside of the Najd. That struck a chord that, that resonated with folks when you go into Riyadh, when you go north of Riyadh, mm -hmm. south of Riyadh, uh, you, you have people who instantly know what you're talking about. They can understand this and affiliate with this. It's not a Najd al-Kubra in the sense that we talk about uh, a, 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 a greater Syria, right? A Najd al-Kubra is a much, it's not a term that exists, but it is a concept in the minds of many of the people I would meet, that there are Najdis who live far away from Najd, but maintain their connections, their ties, their identity to the Najd. And in that regard, you have a Najdi diaspora, you might say. <clears throat> and certainly for the period under question, you have villages, whole towns in Iraq, and, and you could even argue in Southern Jordan at the time, uh, that uh, identify as Najdi as a, as a corporate entity for the town or the village. Uh, it's not to say that there are irredentist claims on land or territory, etc. So I just want to say that from the outset. Now, what does it mean to be Najdi? 
that's hard to pin down. You don't have a, a rhetoric or a uh, propaganda around that in the early part of the state that you can pin your hat on and say, this is how it was defined and here's how it was disseminated. Uh, the closest you can get to a thinker for Najdi identity in the early part of the state is uh, Suleiman bin Saleh Dakhil. And there's almost nothing in English, but again, there's a couple wonderful uh, bios of him written in Arabic that have been done over the years. Uh, the problem is when you read his writings, and he was the founder of Ariad newspaper, 1910 to 1914. Uh, he was very prolific as a writer. Um, interestingly, again, for this topic, he was a self-identifying Najdi writer trying to promote uh, an identity for the burgeoning state. And most of his work he was doing was from Iraq. Nonetheless, uh, trying to pin him down on what that meant to be Najdi, uh, you come up with a, a set of confusing definitions largely tied to Ottomanism, uh, pan-Islamism. And even then uh, he included different, different ethnicities in the Najd as part of a Najdi identity. He didn't see Najdi identity as, as solely ethnically related or even Wahhabi uh, tied to, to the teachings of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. Um, I would love to dig up a quote here for you, but maybe we'll come back to that later. We'll come back to that later. So, so we can talk about a Najdi diaspora, we can talk about their role in politics, but the more you, you think about it, the more I, uh, more I thought about it, the more I had to ask myself, well, how do we define these things? How did these folks define these issues for themselves? Um, and being able to then explore the relationship with Iraq helped me out quite a bit because you could see so much of policymaking, decision-making in Riyadh reflected in the way that they engaged with Iraq uh, in diplomacy, on security, and a whole range of areas in economics. Even if we don't know what was, what was happening in the royal court necessarily, so much was not written down. What little was written down is so hard to access. Uh, the archives are very difficult to approach, especially as an outsider. And even when you, you get to places like the Darat Malik Abdulaziz, you find that certain core central individuals like Abdul Latif al-Mandil, who was agent for Ibn Saud in Basra and in Zubair, uh, and also a, a parliamentarian in, in the, the Iraqi parliament and a minister of state, uh, so little <laughs> exists, even though that relationship was so close. Uh, digging up documents, even in archives in Riyadh, is not a simple matter. It's not an easy task. Much just simply doesn't exist anymore. Uh, a figure like Abdullah Damnuji, who was the first Minister of Foreign Affairs, who basically created the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, for the, the new uh, Najdi government, the later the Saudi government. Um, again, he was an Iraqi working for Ibn Saud. Uh, I've got pictures of him in the book in full thobe and besht, uh, which his family was very polite to provide in the period when he was working for Ibn Saud. This is an Iraqi who, who uh, is helping to build the Saudi state. And yet to research him, to, to identify his role within the royal court is almost impossible. He destroyed most of his papers, photographs, et cetera, in 1958 for fear that the revolutionary government would arrest him and his family and torture them. And that these documents, his, his family photos, including photos by Gertrude Bell, would be destroyed in the process. So, so how are you going to get at decision-making and the role that, that these communities played in Riyadh? Uh, very difficult. The, the benefit of studying the, the Saudi-Iraqi relationship is that Iraq was the number one foreign policy concern for Saudi Arabia for much of its early statehood. And the diplomatic interactions between the two countries were, were close and frequent. And then we can talk about how that developed and what it meant and what you learn about Iraqi society as a result. Suffice to say that uh, to conclude what all this means and, and what the book ultimately is about, it's about then how uh, the relationship between the two countries is shaping and influencing the politics within those countries. When scholars talk about mm. how foreign policy is an outgrowth of domestic politics, that policymakers in one capital experience threats, threat perceptions, and respond to them based on domestic policy concerns. Uh, uh, 
Well, we can also do the opposite. We can show how foreign policy interactions, diplomatic engagements between one country and another shape the domestic politics. The interactions that the Saudi government is having with the Iraqi government in this period is uh, in some ways directly and indirectly helping to encourage these Najdi communities living in Southern Iraq to come to Saudi Arabia and help build the state, thereby shaping the growth of domestic politics in Riyadh. By a similar token, you can show in Iraq that uh, the issue of sectarianism is not something that is prominent at the time of the 1920 revolution, but immediately after the revolution with these raids going on of Najdi tribes into Iraqi territory, it becomes a political football in Baghdad, a lightning rod for different political factions in Iraq to debate what should the state be, who should be in charge. Shia clerics in Karbala and Najaf arguing that if the central government can't protect us from these Najdi raids, then the government's illegitimate and the British should be thrown out and we should have a Shia-led government. So sectarian politics, in a sense, the, the rhetoric around it, even if it's not as divisive as it will later become, it, it emerges in a way that, that you hadn't seen before, with the starting point being these Najdi raids across the border from one country to another that neither government could fully control or regulate. So again, foreign policy helps determine domestic politics. Uh, and that's a topic that exists in the Middle East, but is rarely explored. The best example that I can think of is with Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, he writes his own account of why he contributed to the free officers movement. And he says specifically, we were on the front lines in, uh, in Gaza and the war was going badly and it was going badly as a result of the decisions of politicians back in Cairo. And we realized that the only way to win this mm. war uh, would be political change back in Cairo. And the only people that were capable of doing that were the military generals. So a foreign policy issue, frontline fighting contributes to a domestic political coup. Uh, so this topic of foreign policy influencing domestic relations exists all over the region. It's a little studied. And uh, I want to be able to do a case study in this. Uh, but again, for the purpose of eventually working my way back to then what does it mean for the people caught in between? The border communities themselves, the Zuberis, the, the Najdis living in Sukashayoch and Hamisia, the tribes like the Otaibi, the, uh, the Shamar, the uh, Duhamsha, who are, and, and the, the Dafir, who are living along the border trying to choose uh, which side they should be on, because now they have to choose now if there is a border. Um, so I'll leave it at that. I encourage everybody to check it out. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Kashishian to describe what his most recent research has been about. Dr. Kashishian? As a bridge to Dr. Kashishian, um, it's just coincidental. We're talking about succession and uh, legends and passing on uh, expertise, specialization, uh, charisma. Uh, I neglected to mention in the introductory remarks of, of Dr. Yaffe that his mother, uh, Judith Yaffe, Dr. Judith Yaffe, was a pillar of uh, scholarship and so solid research on Arabia and the Gulf, not for years, but for decades um, <clears throat> in the broader foreign affairs practitioner community uh, in the na nation's capital. So uh, sometimes the uh, acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. And here we have Joshua Yaffe carrying on in the footsteps and footprints of his uh, great mother, uh, Dr. Judith Yaffe. Uh, Joseph Kashishian, uh, it's the floor is yours, sir. And I wanted to mention that he's a graduate of the University of Virginia. I grew up in Lebanon uh, for a long time with the Rand Corporation as its foremost uh, research and writer on matters pertaining to the Arab region, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. And that he is a senior fellow at the King Faisal uh, Center for Islamic Studies and Research. Uh, we're lucky to have both of these scholars uh, with us today and to open our eyes on a little studied little understood and widely misunderstood topic of uh, the legend of King Abdulaziz and aspects of Saudi Arabia-Iraqi relations and vice versa. 
And in terms of Josh Yaffe's point about foreign policy influencing domestic issues, of course, you made reference to the issue of Palestine that's impacted on the domestic politics of every Arab, Middle Eastern, and Islamic country. So we're talking about a minimum of 57 uh, countries there. And those who would refer to Israel as an apartheid state and as a colonial state uh, beyond the, the euphemistic word of settlements there uh, have realized the traumatic and dramatic impact of external events on domestic policies and not least Vladimir uh, Zelensky and uh, Kiev at this moment uh, is feeling the brunt, the weight, uh, the awesome overwhelming power of a neighboring country coming from the outside, uh, determining uh, what will be his positions, his policies, his actions. Dr. Kishishin. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm delighted to be uh, a panelist here and to pick up uh, very quickly on the last point that uh, Joshua Yaffe made uh, about the fact that the decision-making process in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has really roots in, in uh, past policies that have been affected by not just the regional developments, but also by a variety of actors that have had their say in the process itself. In the old days, of course, senior members of the ruling family King Abdul Aziz, the founder, uh, along with uh, religious uh, community leaders, along with uh, uh, prominent business individuals, but also very important experts who have added their value to the process. And uh, just very briefly, before I touch on some of the things that, that we want to discuss about the current decision-making process, I just want to focus on a few of the senior experts or, or advisors to the king, to the founder king, uh, even though today we have a slew of experts that are specialized in a variety of subjects that can actually present to the decision makers a variety of options. This was not the case, obviously, 100 years ago. Uh, there were very few experts. Uh, Joshua Yaffe mentioned uh, the Iraqi, prominent Iraqi uh, leader, Damluji, Abdullah Damluji, who who may have who may have uh, been the first foreign minister, although at that time there was no foreign ministry, so to speak, uh, in the kingdom. Uh, and I have spent several years drafting a book on Sheikh Yusuf Yassin, a Latakia Syria-born naturalized Saudi, who actually was one of the founders of this process of decision making in the kingdom to advise the king. Now. I've uh, titled the book, The Arab Nationalist Advisor, Yusuf Yassin of Saudi Arabia, and hopefully the book will see light and it will not be a posthumous work. Uh, we will see what will happen to that. Uh, but Yusuf Yassin was the kind of individual that actually added value to the process. And he was a nationalist at heart, an Arab nationalist at heart. He came from Latakia, as I said, in the 19, mid 1920s and started uh, studying not just the Najd, but throughout the, pro throughout the kingdom in his travels with the monarch, Abdul Aziz, uh, throughout the kingdom, trying to get to know people, trying to um, add value. And let us not forget that he became a, a prominent advisor to three kings, even though the last one, King Faisal bin Abdul Aziz, was still the heir apparent at the time. He died in 1962. But between 1925, approximately, and 1962, Yusuf Yassin played the kind of role that neither Abdullah Damluji, nor uh, Khairuddin Zirqilli, nor uh, Fuad Hamza, nor any of the other prominent leaders, advisors could accomplish. Why is that? And, and I think this is something which is very pertinent to today. We have to understand the, 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 the uh, characteristic of the mindset here. He identified primarily with Abdul Aziz's outlook. He, a very religious person, decided that from the very first, what he would do, he would become not just a worker, he would just not, he will have a purpose in, in his life. And I think 
he managed to a, to a large extent to advise, to display the kind of understanding to the decision makers based on his religious beliefs. Obviously, everybody thinks that he was a Alawi because he came from Latakia, but in reality, he was a Sunni uh, and, and uh, very much part of the establishment. Uh, and in the and he was a he was a workaholic uh, to an extent that has not been duplicated since. And I must tell you that I based my research on him, based on two thousand eight hundred and sixteen documents that took me more than six months to read and identify and and decipher. Plus, I listened to his audio tapes. Uh, he had ob obviously recorded lots of audio tapes. All of this is included in the book. But all of this essentially helped the decision makers because his workaholic approach, his view of what the kingdom of Saudi Arabia ought to uh, play a role. And let's not forget that there were Abdul Aziz, the founder king, was the man with the incredible vision. He acknowledged to Amin Rihani, one of the few early visitors to him, that his dream was to create the United States of Arabia. 100 years ago, Abdul Aziz spoke about unity and stability on the Arabian Peninsula and elsewhere throughout the region. The United States of Arabia. That, of course, never happened in reality. But one can say that his successors are trying now to duplicate the creation of that kind of a vision for the entire region. Whether they will succeed or not, of course, this remains to be determined. But obviously, when someone like Yusuf Yassin has the ear of the founder king to actually implement this kind of vision, then one should not be surprised that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia pursued the line that it has pursued ever since that period of time. Now, let me add two more points that are important, in my humble opinion. Saudi Arabia has always been motivated by two primary uh, aspects of domestic and foreign policy. They always, always thought about stability at home <clears throat> and security in the region. Both of these objectives have never wavered from the founder all the way to today. And it seems to me that on this score as well, the Al Saud, despite a variety of problems at home, have been able to maintain internal stability despite the 1979 attempt to overtake the Mecca Mosque, despite attacks from foreign powers on the kingdom itself, despite a variety of challenges whether it was Jamal Abdel Nasser in the 1960s, uh, wh whether it was other episodes, despite all of these challenges at home and throughout the region, the stability of the ruling family has been really cemented in a way that few outsiders appreciate. And the second point in terms of security, the kingdom has never had the ambition to actually rule the entire region. It does not have a hegemonic vision. It has never really displayed a hegemonic appetite to rule over the entire Arab or Muslim worlds. Rather, it has always maintained vision of cooperation with a variety of neighbors, including Iran, with which obviously today there are serious disputes, but not just with Iran, the years, as I said, there were disputes with Egypt, there were disputes with Iraq that uh, Joshua Yafi spoke about. There were disputes about a variety of different, with a variety of different countries. But at the end of the day, the kingdom that was fine. Now, let me just conclude by saying a few more words about Yusuf Yassin and, and, uh, and, and the kind of connection that one we can make with today. 
in my research on this book. And since the kingdom, the kingdom's founder, Abdul Aziz, was very much interested in the question of Palestine, the advisor proposed a two-state solution for the Arab-Israeli conflict back in 1947. Now, this is something which we don't talk about. The fact that Saudi Arabia has actually proposed the two-state solution long before it has become popular among decision makers since that time. Now, whether or not this legacy will eventually translate into permanent peace between the Arab world and Israel remains to be determined. But I think that it is important to mention that there were people in the kingdom who have been thinking about security and peace for a very long period of time. And last point, um, as a scholar of Islam, as I said, Yusuf Yassin was a very religious person. Sheikh Yusuf was one of the first men in the Arab world. I don't want to call him a leader since he was an advisor, not a decision maker per se, but he was one of the first men who pledged with fellow Arabs, whether they were Palestinians, Syrians from his beloved Latakia or Damascus, even Lebanese where he came and lived. At that time, his objective was to oust the Ottoman Empire and bring the Arab nation together because he firmly believed that the Arab nation, an Islamic nation that defined and protected and promoted Arab, that promoted Arab interest was what was needed. He fought as necessary and within the means that he had the battles in the field and in the courts. Remember that he was also involved in the International Court of Justice dispute over the Buraymi Oasis and a variety of other issues. But he was not as anti-Western as people think. And this is my last point. A lot of people assume that Saudi Arabia is anti-Western. Nothing can be further from the truth. However, what Abdul Aziz and his successors have always maintained was that the United States of Saudi Arabia, let's put it that way, if not the United States of Arabia, what wanted to be the best, wanted to have the best of relations with the West in general and the United States in particular, as long as it was based on mutual respect and confidence. That I think really defines what the kingdom has in terms of objectives. It was true 100 years ago, it's true today. I will stop here and turn over for the questions. Thank you. Let's hear. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kishishin. Thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Yaffe. <clears throat> I will make a few comments and invite your uh, comment or critique of these comments. Um, if one or the other of you might address the individual by the name of Abdullah Suleiman, uh, who in energy circles, oil company circles, finance circles, first cabinet circles, uh, has a larger than life uh, echo or shadow in the period that you've been focused on, but his name was not mentioned. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, is uh, King Faisal himself, who remained the foreign minister uh, even after he became the monarch, the king of Saudi, Saudi Arabia. And that is not ordinarily the situation. It was in the case of the Sultanate of Oman, uh, Sultan Qaboos remained his own foreign minister and minister of finance and minister of defense uh, as well. Uh, but Faisal picked up on this, you, you use the word workaholic, and people have described all three of us uh, variously as workaholics. I think it's usually as a compliment, uh, but I think it, uh, a more charitable, uh, neutral way of expressing it is someone who does what he loves and, and, and loves what he does. Uh, does what he loves and loves what he does there. So the idea of a nine to five of punching the clock out uh, just is, uh, is a non-issue there. And to get the job done, very goal oriented, very driven uh, with uh, vision and strategy 
in tactics, a whole ball of wax. And uh, King Faisal working alongside Yusuf Yassin and vice versa, he became this way. Um, questions uh, coming here, let's see, there's one that wants to know about um, what are the lessons learned uh, by the rule and reign of uh, King Abdulaziz uh, that are applicable today uh, that young people looking for role models will say, yes, that's the way to do it. What is it that parents say to their children? Be like him, be like her, uh, or do the right thing, the right time, for the right reasons, for the right people, and you have a better chance at having the right results. And, um, floor is open to either. Yeah, Professor Anthony, you mind if I, if I interrupt there? I'm sorry to, to take away from, from this, no, no. but, uh, but yeah, to, in, in line with that question, going back to the theme that we have today, what is the relevance of any of this for today? In the limited time we have left, I'll just try and choose one set of examples. And that has to do with how the royal court handled diplomacy. Uh, in that period, you have a range of officials at the royal court, Yusuf Yassin, Hafiz Wahba, Abdul Damluji, uh, Philby, uh, Fuad Hamza. There's at least two Libyans who fought in the Libyan revolt who ended up in Riyadh and end up supporting the, the, the royal court. There's a range of people coming in and coming out, uh, these senior advisors. Uh, when I look at how they functioned and how Ibn Saud uh, related to them and how they were deployed in the form of, of diplomatic policy making. I see a lot of echoes and, and it makes me wonder how many, uh, how much of the way diplomacy has done the kingdom today was modeled after the experiences that took place in those early years. Um, one thing is, is that although a lot of these senior advisors uh, had issues they cared deeply about and were took the lead on, uh, there was an interchange of ideas that often was acrimonious. Uh, one of the reasons Abdul Damluji eventually left Riyadh is he simply didn't like the court politics. It was, it was vicious in some regards. Uh, these people had portfolios, but they also uh, had a duty or responsibility to compare notes, to share ideas. And that did lead to, to competition on some level. Uh, Professor Kashichian will know better than I will because uh, he studied uh, different members of that group much more intensely. Uh, but ultimately, it was the king making decisions at the highest level. And this is something that Western interlocutors had trouble understanding. Sometimes they, they uh, thought very much that the person they were interacting with, for instance, the British with Hafez Wahba, uh, Hafez was often sent to London as, as minister counselor, uh, interacting with the British very intensely. They, they couldn't tell whether he was uh, speaking for policy in Riyadh, or or if he was conveying policy for Riyadh, or if he was simply sharing his own thoughts on what policy should be, which was totally divorced from what was going on in Riyadh. <laughs> the negotiations over the Treaty of Arab Brotherhood are a perfect example of this. Uh, Hafez Wahba is going to London, going to Baghdad, sharing his own ideas about Arab unity and about the need for an Arab mutual defense treaty. Uh, in the early 1930s, and nobody can figure out if that is any sort of reflection on policy thinking in Riyadh whatsoever. It seemed to be Hafez Wahba's personal legacy that he wanted to establish. Um, uh, anyways, so, so similar to later eras of diplomatic function, and even more recent years of foreign policy making, you have a group of foreign policy experts who are deeply engaged on ideas, thinking about what policy should be, but it, they're not the ones who are ultimately gonna be making the decisions. And it's not always clear that their conversations are having a direct determinative impact on what that ultimate policy outcome is going to be. Uh, similarly, there, there was a uh, general directorate for foreign affairs under Del Muji that became Ministry of Foreign Affairs under uh, uh, Faisal bin Abdulaziz. Uh, and uh, foreign officials had real trouble uh, uh, figuring out how to engage. In what way are they supposed to engage? Uh, how are we supposed to interact with these interlocutors at the working level, if at all? It was a real challenge uh, back then, just as it has been in later generations, because policymaking is so centralized and at such a high level. 
Um, but I think the most interesting aspect of, of foreign policy making that's similar from then until now and probably got established back then was how foreign leaders interacted with the king himself. Uh, we often uh, hear these stories of meetings with uh, the kings of Saudi Arabia in which the meetings uh, largely begin with a recounting of bilateral relations between Saudi Arabia and France, Saudi Arabia and England, whatever it might be, uh, leading into uh, um, a, a long discussion then of, of the historical nature of the relationship, uh, sparing only a few minutes at the end of the meeting for discussion of substantive issues in which no decisions are reached. Well, when you look back on how Ibn Saud, how King Abdulaziz managed his diplomatic meetings with foreign leaders, it became that affair, it did, but that's not how it started. In the 1920s, uh, King Abdulaziz very much was at first hand engaging in specifics of the issues that mattered and trying to find compromises with the foreign leaders that he was engaged with and trying to offer solutions, diplomatic solutions that could use tools and, and mechanisms of peace building and confidence building to, to achieve uh, a better outcome in whatever it happened to be, the, the issues that were at hand, uh, very hands-on diplomacy that he was engaged in. And it was only after that first decade in the 1920s of repeated failures, failures that came from uh, visiting foreign dignitaries, especially from Iraq, like Nouria Saeed, coming into uh, uh, the kingdom and promoting their own political agenda. The difficulty that, that King Abdulaziz had in uh, getting straight and honest answers from some of the interlocutors that he was engaged with, the frustration of having to wade through Iraqi politics to try and get to the core of the matter to be able to debate and negotiate uh, real diplomatic solutions that could solve border problems. Uh, the frustration involved in that over a period of 10 years you can see progressively in the way uh, King Abdulaziz uh, relates in, in these, these events in his letters, in his conversations with his sons, uh, what's recorded and left to us in publications. You can see his frustration growing to the point where he simply does not want to put himself out there in that way anymore. And from 1930 onwards, he increasingly retreats behind this uh, passive approach to diplomatic engagement um, that that uh, that that says the world the world is welcome to come and and be part of a dialogue with us on any issue at any time, uh, but we don't want to put ourselves out there in a way that the the trillium is going to get cut off from from us. That uh, domestic politics in your country, whatever it might be in Iraq, Iran, whatever country you're talking about, uh, becomes an impediment to uh, real progress on substantive issues that matter to us in the kingdom. Uh, and you can see him then, even in his language and his rhetoric, uh, retreat uh, in that way uh, after failure and failure of trying to wring concessions and compromises out of his interlocutors. Uh, do we still have Dr. Kashichian on the line or has he lost his connection? Uh, I believe he may have lost his uh, connection. Uh, Dr. Kashishian? Are you, are you no, we've him? lost him. So okay. I'll turn it back to you, Professor Anthony. Do you have any closing remarks you'd like to add? Yes, indeed. Um, uh, the um, opportunity here to contribute to knowledge and understanding is, is, is too great to, uh, to resist you. Most of the media and a fair number of scholars uh, refer to Saudi Arabia's monarchy as an absolute monarchy. Uh, I would uh, contend that it's not an absolute monarchy. It's never been one. Uh, and that requires an explanation. An absolute monarchy would be where an individual can uh, almost in medieval times say off with her head, off with his head, and the act would be done. No, this cannot be done. Uh, what's the frame of reference here when <clears throat> King Fahad was uh, king and I was in a uh, press conference, a journalist asked him, uh, uh, your majesty, can you give us some insight about how you make decisions? Which is what you've been focusing on, uh, Dr. Yafi, a bit here. And his answer was, I don't. And the individual, excuse me. Uh, the question was, how do you make decisions, your majesty? 
And he said, I don't. He said, you can think of me as a press conference spokesman, sort of like Jan Psaki in, in the case of President uh, Biden. Uh, all I do is announce what is the consensus of those with whom I have consulted. And I've consulted them at length, uh, at length uh, to have their input, their comment, uh, because uh, none of us are bereft of blemish or free from flaw or devoid of, of defect. So uh, consult all of the knowledgeable people, those who have a concern, who have a need, who have an interest, who have a goal, uh, to take all of those into consideration uh, before a decision is reached. Now, how does that pertain to Western values or so-called democratic uh, values? <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson, of course, we know wrote and spoke at length um, and used the word democracy uh, uh, and, uh, from its Greek roots of the, the people reign, the people rule uh, there. And he said, if I had to reduce it to a phrase, it would be the following, the consent of the governed. Now, the consent cannot be manufactured out of thin air. Uh, it is the result of consultation. And in the United States, the most effective legislators and decision makers uh, are closer to the people, namely the elected body, were in the United States Senate and House of Representatives. In the Senate from uh, Senator then Lyndon Baines Johnson, in the House, Sam Rayburn. The two of them uh, have a record of legislative effectiveness that's not rivaled uh, by any other uh, American leaders. Uh, these two would consult with every single interest group that had a uh, stake in the game. And if they could not get consensus, they didn't introduce the legislation for vote. They would save it for the next session and work on it more. This is the inner side of the truth of how decision-making is made inside of the ruling families of Arabia. And it is a window onto their security as well as their stability. If you have security, you have a great chance for stability. Uh, you don't have stability if you don't have security as such. Now, all six of the GCC countries, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, cut of the United Arab Emirates in Oman can be characterized in, in this way. They are arguably for the last 40 years, the six most contiguously stable and secure of all the world's 130 so-called emerging economies, what used to be called the third world or the developing world, although we are all part of the developing world. So this insight from King Fahad uh, was searing in its truthfulness. And we know that when uh, Kuwait was invaded by Iraq, uh, that there was extensive consultation within the uh, annals of the ruling family of Saudi Arabia. And that, that was not unanimity, but there came to be consensus. So their system has to do with consultation and consent. And so does ours. We use different words, different tactics, different means, different gimmicks, different me mechanisms. But this is what is going on as we speak here with a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's not a given. The president cannot have his way simply because he wants this particular judge to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, consultation and consent is going on right under our noses, right at this very moment, as it is in all of the ruling families of Arabia. You both have introduced a great amount of information, insight, knowledge, understanding, and analysis. And Dr. Kashishian, uh, I... a few minutes, would you add something? Okay. Yeah, may I, I? I'm sorry, my internet, my internet connection dropped for no. a second, but I'm back on. Um, I, I, uh, I totally agree with you. I did not mean to, su to suggest that there was some kind of a hierarchy between security and stability. I, I fully agree with you. But the point that I was trying to make, uh, 
was that in, in the first half of the 20th century, the Arab world went through dramatic political changes where several monarchies were overthrown from yeah. Egypt to Libya, to Iraq, to Yemen, to uh, a variety of other uh, countries. Therefore, I think that what is remarkable about the Gulf states, which you have just mentioned, uh, is that they actually managed to maintain their stability, their internal stability and their legitimacies. Now, they've done this, of course, by making sure that they, uh, their security was obviously taken care of, first and foremost, no doubt about that. But we should not underestimate the fact that the price that they paid for this stability and the security, uh, and add the two points that you correctly added to this conversation, development and justice, with which I agree. But the fact that they've managed to do all of this and this was the point that I was trying to make, links the first part of the century, of the 20th century to today, namely that only the Arab Gulf countries have managed to have security and stability throughout the region. I mean, Rehani was correct 100 years ago when he stated that the United States of Arabia is something worthwhile. Now, this is not Arabism the way we know it, this is not the kind of political rhetoric that we grew up in in the Middle East during the 20th century. This is something much more. If you would like, it's the kind of, to make it relevant today, it's the technological step that has been overtaken. Instead of al-Uruba in Arabic, one could say it's the Auraba of the Arab world. Yeah. The Auraba, the, the mixture of the Arab world with the international community. The Gulf countries don't want to be separated from the rest of the world. They, are, they want to be part of the world. They want to make sure that their voice is heard. They want to make sure that they have a place at the table. And I think to that extent, to the extent that Joshua Yafi and I are talking about, I think that the link is absolutely clear between the vision of a hundred years ago and division today to have a place at the table. And remarkably, they've succeeded in this. Yes, thank you, Dr. Kashishian. That was a fantastic addendum there. Uh, two last points you mentioned, uh, both of you did, about the country being pro-Western uh, through much of the uh, last century and to this day. Now, that didn't happen either by coincidence or by accident. Of course, King Saud was not meeting with the uh, Emperor of Japan or, or China or Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, or elsewhere to the Far East in the Indo-Pacific uh, region. His primary interlocutors were Americans and the British, and uh, more remotely, uh, the French, all three, three Westerners there. But what sealed it and what seared it was King Faisal, then Prince Faisal, uh, heir apparent, Crown Prince Faisal's visit to the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. He's the only member of the ruling family who went and spent quality empirical time on the ground and traveled far uh, and in between uh, the subtle places of the Soviet Union. And he returned with the conviction that this is the exact anathema of everything that we are, everything that we've been, everything that we aspire to be. Uh, we have learned a scorching, searing, painful lesson. And how can we do this being so few in number uh, if international communism uh, comes to be on the march? As it did, look in Eastern and Central Europe and the Central Asia and, and elsewhere. Uh, so this alignment with the West, which was rock solid against international uh, communism, has a lot to do with uh, King Abdulaziz's son, who was the de facto and de jure Minister of Foreign Affairs, based on that experience that he had in the Soviet Union of an atheistic, godless uh, ideology and faith, so to speak, the exact antithesis of a country that is the custodian of the two holiest places in Islam, and that is the headquarters of the nearly two billion uh, Muslims 
the fastest growing of the three monotheistic faiths uh, on the uh, planet. Uh, so that's the aspect of the pro-Western uh, dimension of it. And the consultation and consent is not removed at all from the concepts of consultation and consent uh, in Western more established democracies in the industrialized economies of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your listenership, your viewership, uh, Dr. Kashishian. We're lucky to have you. Uh, everybody needs to be familiar with his books. Uh, if you're a specialist, they need to be on the shelf of your library uh, to better understand Saudi Arabia, what it is, what it is not, and its role in regional and world affairs, and what constitutes the glue in the strategic special relationship that is now going on 80 years uh, of a relationship that is the envy of all of the other countries in the world. Uh, it gets a bad press in the West uh, and we get a bad press in the East. So there's at least a bipartisan aspect uh, to the criticism and the analyses and the provocations and the antagonisms between uh, uh, two uh, networks of, of media uh, proponents, um, but there's not a country in the world that wouldn't trade places with the United States uh, to have the special relationship that American Americans have with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Both of you have helped to enlighten us a lot in that regard. Thank you both. Thank you, viewers. Thank you for your questions.